God, we thank you for your generosity towards us in Christ. We thank you that you did not hold anything back in lavishly pouring out your love for us. And God, I thank you that your people have responded in generosity this year. We give you thanks for the last three months of financial self-sufficiency. And we pray that as a church, you would continue to help us to be able to stand on our own two feet, being able to meet our needs, pay our bills. God, we thank you for that. We pray that you would continue to inspire a spirit of generosity here amongst your people. We thank you for our board of operations, our financial team. We thank you for the blessing that they are, the gifts that they bring, the skill that they bring to this team, our church. God, we thank you for their hard work, their dedication. We thank you that our church is in good, safe hands when it comes to their ministry and service of us. And so we bless them, we honour them for their ministry and leadership this year. And God, now as we come before you in the Scriptures, we pray that you might give us humble, soft hearts to hear what you would have to say to us today. Every single person in this room, God, that we would hear your voice specifically addressing us in our context. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would prompt us, change us, make us more like Jesus. We ask this in his strong name and all of God's people who agreed said, Amen. Amen. You know what, if you realized this this morning as you came into church, that you probably, whether you did this subconsciously or consciously, you probably tried to figure out something about who you were your own value, your own self-worth by comparing yourself to someone else. Maybe you did that on the basis of ethnicity. You walked in here and you're like, man, there's a lot of Anglos in this building. Could do with a couple more wogs, a couple more Asians. Let's make this thing a little bit more multicultural. Or maybe this church is just for white, middle-class, boring people and not African-Americans. Or... And you compared yourself on the basis of your ethnicity. You either look down on people or you perceive to be lower than them. Maybe you compared yourself on the basis of the clothes that you were wearing. You came and you thought, oh, gee, I realized the dress code was, well, Matt's got a collared shirt on and that person, oh, they look so hipster. That, mm, I don't need one of those hats. Maybe I should go to the shops and get one of those hats. And <laughs> you compared yourself maybe on the basis of physical appearance. You walked in here and you thought, hmm, I'm a tad cool for this place, but anyway, I'll lower my standards. I'll, I'll, I'll be here. Maybe I'll attract some people to this church because I'm just so damn fine that people will come when they see me here. But chances are you didn't do that. You thought, damn, everyone in this church is so hot. I'm ugly and fat and I need to go to the gym. Or isn't that guy's, I mean, his, does he lift? He must lift. That guy is buff. Maybe I should go to the gym with him. We'll call it triplet, accountability, partnership, whatever, but I just need to get buffed like that guy. Whatever, uh, chances are you walked in this building this morning and you started comparing yourself to other people and trying to figure out where you stood on the pecking order of beauty and race and you tried to validate something about yourself based on that comparison. Psychologists call that social comparison theory. We do it all the time. And sometimes it feels like life is just this giant game of comparison. You know, when we compare ourselves to someone that we perceive is higher up on the pecking order than we are, it's called upward comparison. And that leads to us feeling bad about ourselves. 
And when we compare ourselves to someone who we perceive to be lower than us on the pecking order, downward social comparison, we end up feeling good about ourselves. But in the end, what we're effectively doing is devaluing ourselves or devaluing someone else. And so we're left with this awkward process of trying to figure out who we are. Mark Twain, who's the author of the the, uh, story Huckleberry Finn, says comparison is the death of joy. Comparison is the death of joy. And he's right. I mean, we didn't need him to tell us that because Jesus had been telling us that for 2,000 years. Science tells us that right now. I mean, research has demonstrated that women, for example, are far more prone to engage in upward social comparison when it comes to matters of body image leading to feelings of inadequacy because of all of the images of perfection that are plastered in front of your eyes every day. But men, don't think you're off the hook. You do it too. You know what started in year eight as being like the the best guy at cross country or the best guy on the soccer team or the first person to be picked when it comes to choosing. Like we just evolved that into career and car and beards and tattoos and motorcycles and You name it. I mean, just think about how competitive we get with the game of cards. We're always comparing ourselves. It's the fabric of our society, and yet it depresses us, does it not? So the solution we're told is this. Don't compare. Compete against your own personal best. Be the best version of yourself that you can be. But in the end, we really deep down know that that's either a lie or we've just lowered the bar. And so we don't know how to figure out who we are because we spend all of our time doing that by comparing ourselves to other people. It's a form of self-evaluation, of self-validation, of seeking for approval. Now, why do we do that? Why do we search for approval from external things? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that the reason we do that is because we have been created to know and be known by God. The reason that we long for that approval is because we've been created by God to know Him, to worship Him, to be in relationship with Him. But before we get into this story, let me just say this. Let's just get this out there. Christians are often the worst at social comparison. Uh, Olive Tree Media has done this research into what terms you would associate with Christians. And these are the phrases that our culture throws at us. Hypocrite. Smug, self-righteous. We're so good at looking down our noses on everyone else thinking, well, those people out there need Jesus, but in here we're all good. We're often the worst at social comparison. And Jesus tells this story to exactly those people. Did I read the Bible yet? I didn't. We need to read the Bible. Let's do that. Have a look at verse 9. This is who Jesus tells this story to. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, 
will not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus tells this story to people who are seeking to validate their own identity based on a track record and a comparison, who look at others with contempt in order to make themselves feel good. So he introduces us here to two characters, two characters who have two prayers. The first character there is in verse 10 is a Pharisee. Now the Pharisee is, he's a religious volunteer. He's not a paid employee of the temple. He's not a priest. He doesn't work there. He's a volunteer. He's kind of like one of our gospel community leaders, right? And he is the pinnacle of religious sincerity in the first century. Everyone looked at the Pharisees and thought, if only I could be like them in my spirituality. It's kind of like the Christian guy in the story, you know, the one who comes to church with his fat ESV, leather-bound study Bible with little tabs down the side. You flop it open. It's got highlighting and notes in the margins and sticky notes in there. And he sits in the front row and where the preacher says something somewhat profound, he's like, mm-hmm. He's taking notes. I mean, he's, he puts money every time in the giving container. He's the first person to put his hand up to volunteer, always helping out to pack the chairs away. Hasn't missed the church working bee in four years. In fact, he goes to church twice on Sunday. His motto is the thicker the book, the more holy you look. He's that guy, right? He is, he's the church guy, the good guy. And so as everyone's listening to this story that Jesus tells and he introduces us to a character the, the first hearers of this story immediately identify this Pharisee as the good guy. He is a model of moral and spiritual uprightness. He's the first character. The second guy is a tax collector. Now, Steve Chong, who preached for us last week, did a helpful job of giving us a picture of what tax collectors are like. But honestly, he's at the opposite end of the social spectrum than this Pharisee. He is a leech. As Steve mentioned last week, Rome sold the right to tax people to the highest bidder. And they did that with very little accountability. And so if you wanted to travel into a city, if you wanted to do business, if you wanted to you know, move in and out of a place, you had to visit the tax man and pay a tax. And how it worked is he would charge you the tax and then he would put a little bit on top and he would put that in his pocket. He would rip you off and there was nothing you could do about it. And so... Jewish people hated tax collectors, not because he was simply ripping you off, but because he was one of your own brothers who was ripping you off. He'd sold his own people out, working for the enemy, making himself rich by ripping you off. In fact, it was said that in the first century, you didn't have to keep your word to murderers, thieves and tax collectors. They would curse the ground that they walked on. Now, it seems to me maybe, and this could just be me, but the cultural equivalent might be a Sydney of City Council parking officer. I'm really, I'm really sorry if you're here and that's one of you, but uh, you know, you, you rock up to your car and you're like three seconds over the time limit and he's there writing it out. And you're like pleading, please, please, like three seconds. I just ducked in and out. And he's like, no, nah, you get a fine. You stayed over. And you're like, damn it, that guy works off commissions. I hate Sydney. I hate this. What, you know, like you. That feeling in your heart, that moment of 
rage and anger and hatred. Maybe you got booked for jaywalking and you just took two steps off the road and then you got, you know, like <laughs> that, that feeling that exists in your heart in that moment is how they felt towards tax collectors. There was this hatred towards them. And so as Jesus tells this story and introduces us to these two characters, the listeners of the story automatically in their head go, huh, Pharisee, good guy, tax collector, bad guy. So let's do that. Let's just, okay, got those two characters, good guy, bad guy, let's go. They come to the temple to pray. The Pharisee prays first. Have a look at verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. This is kind of how I imagine it played out. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Maybe not. I don't know. He probably spoke Aramaic or Jewish, Hebrew. (laughs) He was probably very passionate, actually. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You notice his prayer is a list. It's a list. It's a resume of all of the things that he does and doesn't do. He just begins to kind of rattle them off. God, I'm not unjust. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not a thief. I'm not an adulterer. He cares for people. He gives to the poor. When the salvos come, he puts money in. If he's single, he's keeping himself pure. If he's married, he's been faithful to his wife. Look at all of these things that I've done. And then he says, look at what I do, God. I fast twice a week. Now, I don't know what that would have meant for his physical appearance. Maybe he was slightly gaunt. Maybe he looked pretty fit. But twice, that's a lot of fasting, right? The law required the Israelites to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. Once a year. This guy fasts twice a week. It's 104 times a year. It's 103 times more than was necessary for him. He takes his religion seriously. And not only that, he gives a tithe of everything he gets. Like everything this guy gets, he tithes. If you gave him a Christmas present, a birthday present, he would have taken his calculator out on his phone. And he would have calculated 10% of the estimated value of the present that you just gave him. He would have donated that to church. That's the kind of guy he is. He's religiously, he's impeccable. But there's a problem. There's a problem with his prayer. And his problem is this, that he misunderstands what God deems acceptable. He misunderstands what God deems acceptable. You see, the two problems here, the two mistakes he makes is this. The first is that he thinks that God is impressed with his list. God, look at all of these things that I avoid. Look at all of these things that I do. Doesn't that make me a wonderful person? That's the first mistake he makes. He thinks that his good works and his good reputation make him acceptable to God. And he wears them like a a badge of honor, proudly, spruiking his good deeds. He appeals to God based on his track record and expects that God will love him and owe him as a result of that. It's the first mistake he makes. The second mistake is that he plays the comparison game. You notice it there? As he's praying, he looks and he sees out the corner of his eye the tax collector and he says, God, at least I'm not like that guy. That 
scumbag who is ripping, at least I'm not like him. Of course you would accept me, God. He looks down the social ladder. He realizes that in fact, he is at the top. There is no one better than him. He really comes to the temple. He gives himself a bit of a pat on the back, a round of applause. But the problem is he's got one eye on himself and his own deeds. He's got one eye on the tax collector, but he's got no eye on God. As he comes into the temple, into the presence of God, he, he fails to make the only comparison that he ought to make. And that is the comparison between himself and a perfect and holy God. As he comes into the temple, he comes into the presence of God and he ought to have realized at that point, it doesn't matter how high up the social ladder you are, it doesn't matter how high up the pecking order you are, when it comes to God, you fall horribly short. He made the wrong comparison. He played the comparison game. He made himself feel good because he looked around and he thought that he was the best. Really, in the end, he hadn't come to pray. He'd come to boast in the presence of God. So that's the Pharisee's prayer. Have a look at the tax collector's prayer in verse 13. It's a very different prayer. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You notice immediately the posture is different. He doesn't come in and stand at the front of the temple with his head high and his arms raised, praying in a loud voice. He stands at a distance because he knows he walks into the presence of God. He doesn't look, look to heaven. Instead, he hangs his head in shame over what he's done. And he beats his chest. Now, to us, that might look like a bit of a symbol of bravado, like Tarzan-esque. But in the first century, that's a, a sign of deep grief that you would beat your chest. And it's kind of fitting because the, the problem that this man experiences is not just in the externals of his behavior, but in the, the heart that has rejected God. And he cries out. You notice there's no comparisons he doesn't compare. I mean, he can't, right? He's at the bottom of the ladder. He's got no one to make himself feel good about who he is. There's no comparisons. There's no list of good deeds. It's not like he's kind of hoping that the good things he's done will balance out the bad. He's got nothing to offer. Rather, there's just this simple plea. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't know if you've um, grown up in church, maybe going to kids' church, and you were told as a kid that parables are earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. A nice earthy story communicates a nice truth. The reality is that par Jesus told parables often to offend people, often to get a response out of people. And the reason that he tells this story is to get a response. And so you get to this point in the story where there is this massive shock and twist in the story. You ready? Verse 14, this is what it says. I tell you that this man, that is the tax collector, 
rather than the other, the Pharisee went home justified before God. That just means he went home all good with God. He was right in God's eyes, approved, loved. That the tax collector went home all good with God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, if you're in the first century listening to this story for the first time, that is a moment where you freak out. You're like, what? Hang on. Uh, the bad guy goes home right with God? I don't know if anyone remembers the, the Terminator movies. Anyone? Anyone old enough to remember Terminator? One person. Let me fill you in. Terminator was great. I think it came out in 92. I think I was in year eight, maybe, year seven. Guns N' Roses was on the soundtrack. So good. But we've moved on. But here, so here's the deal. Terminator 1. Terminator 1, the narrative of Terminator 1 is Arnie, human cyborg robot, sent from the future into the past to destroy John Connor. All right, that's the whole movie is about John Connor trying to escape from Arnie who's trying to kill him. Terminator 2 starts like this. Arnie, human cyborg robot, beamed back from the future into the past at a roadside truck stop full of bikies. He walks in naked, bashes a bikie, steals his clothes, and walks out of this truck stop with black boots, black jeans, a black shirt, black leather jacket, black sunglasses, and a sawn-off Winchester lever action shotgun stuck down his back. And he jumps on a black Harley, and he rides down the freeway, and the music in the background is bad to the bone. Now, what do you think the creators of the movie are trying to tell you at that moment? What's the narrative pointing towards? Bad guy. Second scene. Another Terminator comes back from the future into the past. He's beamed back, and he cruises off down the freeway in a police vehicle. He's got nicely slicked back hair, like probably better than mine this morning. Did a good job of it. Perfectly slicked. Police uniform. His pants are like got that perfect pleated press all the way down them. His boots are so perfectly polished that you can see your reflection in him. And he drives down the freeway in a police car. And everything that the directors are trying to tell you about this point is that he is the good guy in the story. And then you get to this moment. In Terminator 2, where John Connor is in the hospital visiting his mum and bursting in through one end is Arnie and bursting in through the other end is the police Terminator and you're freaking out. You're thinking, oh, I hope that the cop guy gets to him first. And you think to yourself, well, surely that couldn't happen. It would be a, a, you know, a, a very short movie if Arnie got there and killed him. And, and so you're freaking out and Arnie gets there. He grabs him. He says, come with me if you want to live. And he shields him from the bullets of the cop Terminator. And then that moment you freak out because you realize that you've been tricked into believing that this guy was the good guy when he's a bad guy and this guy was the bad guy when he's the good guy. And what I'm trying to suggest to you is that verse 14 is the Terminator 2 moment of the Bible. <laughs> because Jesus played a trick on them. In fact... The Pharisee isn't the good guy in the story. The tax collector isn't the bad guy in the story. He is the one who goes home justified. Now, Jesus tells that story to get a response from people. It's not just a nice story. It's not just moral. He wants people to ask a question. And the question is this. How is it that the obviously good guy 
is sent away without being right with God and the obviously bad guy is made acceptable. How can that be possible? That defies logic for us. Why is it that the bad guy goes home right with God? That's the question Jesus wants us to consider. So what is it about this prayer of the tax collector that Jesus loves? And I want to suggest two things that Jesus loves about this prayer. The first is that the tax collector recognizes his sin. He recognizes his sin. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He recognizes that his life is a string of offenses, that he has made a mess, that he has ripped people off, not just in deed, but in word, in thought. He recognizes that he is a sinner. There's no pretending. There's no comparisons. You you notice the tax collector doesn't come into the temple and go, God, at least I'm not like that self-righteous jerk over there. At least I can admit my faults and failures. There's no comparisons, no pretending. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The problem is here, not out there. The second thing that Jesus loves about this prayer is that he asks for help. He recognizes his sin and he says, God, have mercy on me. He asks for help. He's got nothing to offer. He's got no good works to balance out the bad. He can't compare himself to anyone else. He simply asks for help. Please, God, have mercy. You know, I think he actually chose that word carefully, that word mercy. I think he chose that word because as he came into the temple that day, there would have been something at the very front and center that would have caught his attention. It's called the mercy seat. It's the place where the priest would come and take a lamb and you would symbolically confess your sins by laying your hands on the head of that lamb, confess your sin over it, and that lamb's throat would be slit, its blood would be shed, and your sin would be covered and washed away. And so when this tax collector is coming into the temple that day and he sees the mercy seat and he asks God for mercy, what he's saying is, God, do that for me. Cover my sin. I know there is a cost to this. Take it away. Have mercy on me. He's not asking God to let him off. He's not asking God to lower his standard. He's asking God to deal with the sin in his heart and life. And that's exactly, friends, what Jesus does. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. He is the one whose blood was shed on the cross to wash our sin away, to cover it over, to set us free, to give us mercy when we deserve the exact opposite. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. And you see, when I'm accepted by the God of the universe who loves me, who is for me, then that sets me free. I'm free to stop comparing myself to others to try and validate my existence. I'm free to look down or free from the slavery of looking up and always feeling bad about myself. I'm free because I'm accepted and loved by God in what Jesus has done by dying on the cross. Based not on my performance, not on my resume of good works and good deeds, 
but based on the performance of Jesus, what he has done. You know, our world values performance, does it not? And that's how our world operates. If you get good marks, you get into the uni degree. If you get a good time, you get the medal. If you do a good job at work, you get a promotion. I mean, our world rewards performance. And so sometimes and so often, be, be it Christian, atheist, agnostic, we take that framework and then apply it to Christianity. You think, well, that's how God works. That if you do a good job, then he'll accept you. If you're a good person, he'll accept you. The Bible does not say that at all. I think we believe a lie culturally. The lie is this. Good people go to heaven. Bad people go to hell. Friends, that's a lie. If good people go to heaven, heaven's empty. Heaven is empty apart from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because no one is good. No one is righteous. No one can stand in the presence of a perfect and holy God. If heaven is for good people, it's empty. And that's not the message of the Bible. Be good and you get to go. No. The message of the Bible is actually the complete opposite. In fact, the Bible tells us time and time again that prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners are getting into heaven ahead of the religious people. How can that be? Obviously, goodness is not the metric that God uses to assess whether or not we're acceptable. Something else must be the thing that God uses. And that thing is humility. And I don't just mean, you know, like you're a humble person, you're in. I mean, I mean the, the kind of humility that takes a deep, honest look at the soul and says, this is messed up. I'm selfish, I'm broken, I need help. The kind of honest, humble look at the soul like the tax collector does in this story that cries out to God, have mercy on me. You notice how Jesus ends the story in verse 14? Come back, have a look. Verse 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the way to God is not to say, God, look how good I am, lean in. Do you remember all of the good things that I did? Do you remember how I didn't do any of those things? That's not the way to God. The way to God is to say, God, I've got nothing to offer. I've made a mess of this thing. I need help. The way to God is not to talk yourself up, but to actually talk Jesus up. And say, look at what he has done, God. Look at his sacrifice in my place. That makes me acceptable to you. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. That is actually the mantra of religion, and Jesus hates it. He hates it. Religion says if, if you tick enough boxes, then God will accept you. That's, that's religion. But Jesus says, no, no, you're accepted based on what I have done, irrespective of the boxes that you tick or fail to tick. You're accepted not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of mine, of my life that was given, my blood was shed. That's the message of Christianity. That's the message of the Bible. And so if you're here today and you've been thinking all along that this is about my performance, this is about me being good, please hear me. That is never the message of Jesus. 
That is not the message of Christianity. It's a message of grace that God gives freely His one and only Son to set you free to wipe away your sin. Jesus hates that kind of religion because it's a burden that we cannot carry. Tim Keller says, the religion of the Pharisee is doubly cruel because it says, be perfect, and if you can't be perfect, you go to hell. That's not, that is not the burden that Jesus puts on his people. He sets us free by his grace. So the point of this story really is that whoever's shoes you find yourself in, whether you find yourself in the shoes of the person whose life is obviously messed up, broken, and in need, you need Jesus. Whether you find yourself in the shoes of the person who is religious and approaching God with your resume and your list, or irreligious and seeking to validate yourself based on your comparisons and your performance, you need Jesus. Every single person here needs Jesus. Grace is the ultimate leveler. No one deserves grace more than anyone else here this morning. We all come to Jesus equally. There are no podiums. No one gets the gold medal and then the silver and then the bronze. It's not how it works. There's no pecking order. There's no ladder. There is no first class flight to heaven. We all go cattle class. We are all sinners in desperate need of grace. Every single one of us. Everyone comes to Jesus equally. And, and here's the thing. The shock of this story is actually a relief, is it not? This is not about me. This is not about my performance. This is not about how much of a front I can keep up. This is not about how much I've got to lie to myself to pretend that I'm good enough. I can just relax and know that Jesus has done it for me. Jesus has done it for you. The shock of the story is a relief. In the end, there are really only two ways to be right with God. Number one, you can seek to justify yourself. You can seek to appeal to your track record. You can pull out the list. You can show God your resume. You can compare yourself to other people. The, my problem with that is it either leads to one of two directions. One, if you're good at it, you end up feeling proud and self-righteous. If you're bad at it, which is probably most of us, we end up feeling depressed and not good enough. It's a flawed system. You can seek to justify yourself or you can humble yourself like the tax collector did and say, God, I, I need help. I need mercy. Please forgive me. Our significance does not come from the evaluations we make by comparing ourselves to other people, but how far or low we are on the social pecking order. Our significance, your significance comes from the fact that God has created you in His image and likeness, that God has loved you, that God sent Jesus for you, that God has showered you with grace and mercy. The approval that I think we're all so desperately longing for is found in Jesus. And we spend all of this time looking for that significance by comparing ourselves when we've done exactly what the Pharisee did, we fail to compare ourselves to the only person that matters, to God, who is perfect. And we are flawed people. 
And if life's purpose is to be known and know God, who is perfect, then we need a perfect person. And we need a perfect person's goodness and righteousness for us so that we can appeal to that and say, God, accept me based, based on what Jesus has done. I wonder if you've ever done that. Have you ever done that? Maybe you've been here for three years. You've been here since we started. And your relationship with God is one of performance, that you work really hard to keep God happy, but deep down you feel depressed that you just cannot do it. Maybe you've been approaching God with your list, expecting that He would bless you because you read your Bible, you served, you evangelized this week. The message for you today is that that list actually counts against you in God's, in God's measure. What counts for you is what Jesus has done. Maybe you're here this morning and, and this, is, this is new. You're like, you know what? I'm, I'm not religious at all. Me either. Let's just be real about that. But you don't believe in Jesus. You don't worship Jesus. You don't even know what you really believe. But there's a corner of your heart that realizes that you've been searching for self-validation, for your sense of self-worth based on your track record and your comparison to other people. And it is tiring. And maybe today is the day you stop and realize that the only person whose opinion really matters is the God of the universe, that He has loved you. Or maybe you're here today and, and you love Jesus with all your heart. But you are living in a way that just doesn't demonstrate that you are set free by grace. And today you need to be reminded again that you come to God with empty hands. And you come because of Jesus and not your performance and effort. Everyone needs Jesus. There is no first class flight to heaven. But there is a flight. And our hope is that you are on that flight. And the only way to get on the plane is with the ticket of Christ's blood, his death in your place. Our prayer for you is that you would respond to this good news. And so this morning, as we wrap up, as we respond, as we worship, our prayer team are going to be up the back, the far left corner there. They would love to pray for you. If you've been wrestling with any of this stuff, please don't leave here this morning without doing business with God. They would love to pray for you. They would love to pray with you for whatever need you have. But particularly, if you would like to receive the mercy that God has on offering Christ, then head to the back today. They would love to pray for you with that. We're also going to respond by celebrating the Lord's Supper. This meal down the front here represented by bread and grape juice is a symbol of the body and blood of Christ that was broken and shed for you, for your forgiveness, for your freedom. And so if you love Jesus, then come and participate in this meal as a physical, tangible reminder of the reality of the gospel. And we're going to worship our great God. As the band comes up now, I'm going to pray for us. So please join me as we pray. God, I thank you for your grace, your abundant, good grace to us. God, I thank you that we don't have to come to you and try and pretend that we're good enough. 
I thank you that we don't have to come and, and devalue other people by puffing up our own sense of significance. We don't have to come with a resume and a list and a track record that we simply come and appeal on the basis of what Jesus has done. So God, we come this morning and say we're not good enough. We've made a mess. We need help. Please have mercy. We are sinners in desperate need of grace. I pray that every single person in this room here this morning would experience and encounter your beautiful, amazing grace that is an offering Christ. God, free us from living as if we need to perform for you. And help us know that we are loved because of Christ. We worship you. We thank you, Jesus. We pray this in his strong name. And those who agreed said, Amen.